All right, good morning, Bridgeway. Good to see everyone. Happy New Year to you. A uh, couple things about what happened recently uh, with me, just catch you up on speed, um, is I got sick, all right? So I got, I got a sickness going on right now. And so if I do not hug you, that does not mean I do not love you. It means that I'm trying not to share the plague with you, all right? So uh, you're going to hear kind of a rasp in my voice and all that stuff. So what happened was I used NyQuil to go night-night, and I used DayQuil to get up. So in in the 70s, that's called uppers and downers. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm now in that kind of transition phase. So we'll see how the sermon comes out. I don't know what, apparently I also forgot to wear my wedding ring. I don't know why that happened. Uh, apparently something else happened overnight I had no idea about. My wife may have removed that. I don't know. Um, but I had, I had a birthday while I was gone and, uh, thank you very much. That was awesome. And, uh, you were so sweet to me. All the Facebook messages, all the emails, all the texts, all the, all the little, you know, the gifts that you hand. I mean, just. You always spoil me. I just want to tell you thank you just as a family uh, about how sweet you are. Um, but I have something even more exciting that's coming up uh, this next week, and that is on the 7th, is my 20th wedding anniversary. If I'm still married, that'll be awesome, right? Praise the Lord. So, so that'll be exciting. Um, we have a lot of material to cover, so we are going to dive into God's Word right off the bat. We're going to take the entire time to walk through a very fascinating passage. Would you turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 12? John chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, we are only going to be in the book of John today, therefore we're all going to be in the written Word, and it's not going to be up on the screens. I know that a lot of you, uh, that's way cooler. I get it. It's a lot easier, but uh, we're actually going to have to read along together. Now, we're in part 49 of our Being Jesus series, and I titled today's message Head to Head. And what we're going to see is that last time we had Pastor Eric teach you about the woman caught in adultery. How did Pastor Eric do? Pretty awesome, yeah? We have phenomenal teachers here, and he is one of them. And so I knew that I would leave you in good hands. So Pastor Eric kind of led you through the fact that we have this inserted story that, that did happen on the temple grounds. I don't know whether or not it happened on the same week or in the exact same time, or whether or not it was kind of pulled by John just for theme uh, and moved over there. I have no idea. But I do know that the theme is continuing on that Jesus is about to go public with an attack on the religious leaders of the time. Now, this kind of brings up a, a, an issue, which is, why does Jesus get so mad at religious leaders? Why is there, why is there this tension? Because it used to be where they kind of sniped from a distance, right? They'd kind of hang out and follow him around and try to make a problem. But now he's about to turn full face and go after them. And it's going to get ugly. Now, why is he so tense? Because in general... You'd agree with me, Jesus is a nice guy, right? I mean, he's the one that takes time with the kids. He's the one that takes time with the poor. He's the one that's with the downtrodden and the disenfranchised and the, the tax collectors and sinners, right? I mean, he's that guy. So why does he get so mad at the religious leaders? And I think there's two reasons. The first one is that God is a God of systems. Now, he doesn't always have to adhere to his systems, but he sets up a lot of systems. For example, 
we know that in the Old Testament, there was a big system about how the firstborn son was kind of a big deal. Now, notice God would periodically deviate and would allow the secondborn or the thirdborn to be more important and things like that. But in general, he would kind of go with the firstborn. We know that he organized out the 12 tribes of Israel and had it all in neat organization form. We know that he created systems like a theocracy. Y'all know what a theocracy is? That's what Israel was supposed to be. It's a nation run by God. His desire was never to have a king. His desire was always to be the king. They didn't like that, and so they violated his system, so he made up a new system for them. He also set up a system called the prophets, where instead of en masse, where he would just come and start shouting from the sky, he would have an individual man or a woman share a message. He set up a system that was the sacrificial system, right? To where if you had sin, you could reconnect with God by having your sin covered over or have your sin atoned for through an animal sacrificial system through the temple. So God does a lot of systems. Jesus operated through the system of Jew first, then the Gentile. You remember that? And that means that he's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Through your lineage, all nations on earth will be blessed. Well, this system kind of comes into play here because one of the systems God likes to work with is he likes to talk with leadership first and then the general population. He likes to run things for efficiency. Like, for example, he would run through Moses to talk to the children of Israel in the desert wanderings. In the same way, he wanted to be able to talk to the king, like King David, and that he would carry out his will. Notice when he tried to talk to King Saul, it got stopped up there and God got agitated. Well, in the same way, what we have here is Jesus getting agitated because the system is broken. The system should be that the leaders of Israel are the closest ones to God. They're the ones with the softest hearts. They're the ones that are listening the most. They're the ones that are willing to do anything as long as it is God's will. But what he has found is the leadership's broken. And if the leadership's broken, the whole nation is going to go down. Seems that in the last 400 years of silence, the leaders have become arrogant. The leaders have become entrenched. And once you become entrenched in your beliefs, you start resisting God. Because if he wants to do anything new, you will have no part of it. But if they're endangering the people, is God just going to stand for it? Is God just going to say, hey, well, you know what? I'm talking to leaders. They're not listening to me. So I guess everybody goes to hell. No, obviously not. God's not going to put up with that. This, this is eternity at stake. So he's telling the leadership, the only way I'm going to go around you is if you stop listening to me. Well, they had stopped listening to him. And now he was getting agitated. But you notice that for the second reason why he gets irritated is there's an emotional component to it. Why is it that Jesus seems to have a little bit of venom in his voice. I mean, it's not even like he's just doing a dry, you're rebuked, there's judgment, there's discipline. Why does he seem to be taking this personally? I would suggest to you that number two is pride. If you really want to tick God off, be proud. Now, I understand all of us have lists in our minds about what the worst sins are in the world right now. 
I mean, everybody's got their own list. It never is one of one that you're struggling with, right? It's always your neighbor. You know, those are the horrible ones. And then yours is like, God should understand. I mean, I'm really a good guy. Okay, I get it. Whatever that list is of the worst sins, it's pride at the top of your list because it seems to be in Scripture. Pride seems to agitate God almost like nothing else. And you go, why? What is such a big deal about pride? We think of pride and kind of go, ah, whatever. So we feel good about what we're doing. So we're ambitious. So we, we you know, we're happy about the outcomes. What's, what's a big deal about pride? Do you understand that pride caused the fall of Lucifer, which created Satan? Do you understand that it was pride that caused the fall of mankind? As a matter of fact, pride has wrecked everything good. That's why God is so sensitive to it. There is no sin that you're going to do that does not have pride involved in it. Why? Because the very fact that you would do anything contrary to God is because you think you can. And the only way you would ever think that you can is because of pride. Our whole existence is to emit and shine the glory of God and pride is a big wet blanket that falls over that entire thing and shuts it down. It destroys the very creation intent on why we're here. So if Jesus seems a little tense, that's why. And I know that so many of us would just kind of go, well, you know what, there's that pride. I didn't even know I had pride issues. All right, so let's divide it into two categories. Both of them make God throw up. But the first one is kind of the internal pride where you don't even know that you're proud. You're just kind of entrenched in your beliefs, right? Whatever that means. Then there is the outward cocky, what, arrogance. In a religious circle, we call that smug self-righteousness, all right? Now, let me just give you the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, just to kind of cut to the chase. Jesus doesn't tolerate smug self-righteousness. He may cause judgment to fall upon normal pride. But when you start getting into smug self-righteousness that you now think you know everything religiously and you start telling God what to do, now he's got a problem with you. And that's where our story begins. He will go on this rampage public head to head and there will be many of these in the series to come because it's all amping up in the last year of jesus's life to where the clash is happening very very strongly and jesus has a lot to say so if you haven't turned there already john chapter 8 verse 12 page 894 and the bible's under the seat in front of you if you need one of those page 894 it says this again Jesus spoke to them. Now, let me set the tone there. He's got a wilderness motif going on. Remember, to the Jews, the whole exodus is a big deal. The whole wandering in the desert is a big deal. So Jesus has been selecting different elements that seem to tie into the Feast of Tabernacles going on at this time to tie into this wilderness motif of the Old Testament to let people know that he is the new Moses. So what he did is he started out by saying, I am the bread of life, which everyone should have immediately thought what? Manna. Because manna was in the desert wanderings. It was this miraculous food that showed up on the ground. And it was direct food from God. That's a big deal. Jesus said, yeah, I'm better than that. 
Then we learn that during the Feast of the Tabernacles, they'd scoop up water from the Gihon Spring. They'd walk it up all the way. They'd sing and cheer and shout and, and they'd pour it out over the altar. And Jesus said, I'm the living water. I'm better than that water. And they would think back to when Moses spoke to the rock and water poured out of the rock and they all had something to drink. And he goes, yeah, I'm better than that. Well, now he is about to lay down another massive statement that's going to tie back to the pillar of fire that allowed the Israelites to travel at night. If God wanted them to move during the day, it was a pillar of cloud. If he wanted them to move during night, it was a pillar of fire. And we know that that was the protection presence of Jesus Christ. And so here in the middle of a festival that has a huge portion called the illumination of the temple, in the middle of a light ceremony, we see Jesus begin to share these words. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To us, we would say, yes, absolutely, you're the light of the world. And there's nothing offensive about that. But I want you to picture yourself in these scenarios as an ancient Jew. What you just heard was blasphemous. Why? Because there is only one giver of life, there is only one light of the world, and that is God. So if you say you're the light of the world, you are now either God or you're going head-to-head with God. If you're going head-to-head with God, then we have a problem. That's called blasphemy. That means you need to be removed by capital punishment. Everyone is tense. Now, understand... When he says this, this is kind of a neat tie-in to the festival going on because even though they would do it on the first night and some scholars believe they had multiple nights where they would do it, the illumination of the temple was this. The temple compound had various courts. You had the court on the outside where everybody could go. Then you had the court on the inside where uh, it was called the court of the women. That's where all of Israel could go, only if you were a Jew, male or female. Then there was the court... Uh, inside where you would do the sacrifices and the priests and that's where the the inner tabernacle was women weren't allowed to go in that area so they would hold a lot of events in the court of the women because they would get the biggest group and that was all the jews in that court they set up four massive candelabras the wicks were made of used garments of the priests Everything was symbolic and they were, to give you an idea how bright they were, it was poetically referred to that when those were lit at night, all the courtyards of Jerusalem were bright, meaning it was just this stunning bright light. So they would wait for nightfall, wait for it to get dark. They'd light these up. Everybody would celebrate and sing and they would invite out the holy men or the well-respected men of the area. So they would kind of bring somebody out and bring somebody else out. And hey, you, you, you. And these men would begin to dance. When it talks about dancing before the Lord, this is something that we as non-Jews or Gentiles, we as modern-day Americans, we are pretty lame at, okay? That uh, many, many years ago, we did a a service together uh, with a a messianic jewish congregation i don't know how many of you were there way back in the day but we had the the christian rabbi 
preach on one side and I was on the other side and we co-taught through the whole series and then they led the worship and they led the dancing and you guys we looked so awkward it was it was really embarrassing however it was cool to God it just looked stupid for us but there was the whole Jewish dancing all the way around the church inside and it was this is what these men would do they would dance before the Lord from the moment they were invited out they would continue to have dancing until daybreak So you would dance in the court all night long. And it was this massive celebration. Well, you can imagine after everyone has this idea of light in their minds, Jesus says, yeah, I'm more important than that. I am the light of the world. And if anyone walks after me, they'll never walk in darkness. What it means is that no one in the world should ever say, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know my value. I don't understand who God is. No one should ever say, do I have a creator? What is my connection to the creator? Those questions have all been answered by Jesus. And if you walk along with him, what he says is, you were designed to be with God. You were designed to display his glory out into the world. And you were designed to have a love relationship and you have value because God is within you. I understand that you may not think you're a big deal, but to God who's made you in his image, who has come and indwelt you, if you've invited him into your life, then you are a huge deal. No one should ever worry about that. Amen? Amen. Amen. But yet so many in this world still grope about in darkness like they have no idea what's going on. And Jesus said, we got to stop that business. I don't want everyone lost. I don't want the blind leading the blind. I don't want everybody falling into pits they don't need to fall into. Follow me. And if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Do you realize that the Bible also says that we are salt and light? Do you understand that every believer, every Christian is light? But let me clarify what kind of light we are. We are moonlight, not sunlight, okay? There's a big difference. Sunlight shines in and of itself. Moonlight only reflects, yeah? And you go, but wait, 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 no, no, no. I'm pretty awesome, right? (laughs) No, no, no. There's something in me that's shining. Hold up, hold up. That's because God indwells you. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the sun's not shining outside of you, but your stuff is only reflecting the glory of God. If you shut down the sunlight, there is no light coming out of you. That's what we, because we tend to think that either we're a big deal, right? Or that God somehow is doing us a favor. That is not true. It is all his glory and that's why we shine at all. Jesus goes on in verse 13. Uh, Excuse me, it says, so the Pharisees said to him, Wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. You're breaking, the, you're breaking the rules here. You are bearing witness about yourself. Therefore, your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. In other words, I'm a special case. But you don't know where I come from. You don't even know where I'm going. If you did, you'd see how silly this attack is. You judge according to what you can see, according to the flesh. I judge no one at this time. Yet even if I did judge, my judgment is true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I get that. All right, so we'll play that game. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. That's two. 
All right. Now, uh, they're not exactly in on this, all right? Uh, in Deuteronomy, multiple times, it says that in a legal Jewish proceeding, no man is to be convicted unless there is two witnesses. Jesus is obviously caught in a very odd place because what if you're the only one who truly knows who you are? Then you don't have any witnesses. So he's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. Let's just play your game for a second because I like systems. Let's play the system. All right. I am God, so I'm one. My dad is God, he's two. Do you need me to bring the Holy Spirit in for a third? You know what I'm saying? Like, like we know who we are, and we are a special case. But the Jews aren't buying that. They're saying, you don't have any proof. You don't have any validation. Therefore, they said to him, where is your father? You keep mentioning your father as if he's going to validate you, as if he's some kind of big deal. You keep saying your father like he's special. If you want to talk about our father, we're talking about where we came from. We're talking about Abraham. We're talking about our father. If we want to go back a ways, we'll talk about God. Because here's the thing. A lot of us that have grown up around the church, we're very comfortable with the phrase, God is our father. The Jews were not quite as comfortable with that. They knew that in the Old Testament, God said that Israel as a nation was his son. So they would say that we collectively are the son of God. What they are not comfortable with is the personal interaction. The God is my personal dad. So they would try to avoid that a little bit more. And so when Jesus would talk about his father, they didn't immediately go there. So it caused a little bit of a confusion. So they said to him, therefore, where is your father, the one who validates you? And Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. Why? Because the Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. If you ever go, man, I wonder what the father thinks. I mean, I've heard a lot of this Jesus stuff, but what does the father think? It's the Jesus stuff. There's nothing Jesus said that was not in line with the father. If you want to know dad, you can just look at the son. They're identical in their views. So the same heart exists. If you go, well, I really think Jesus is nice, but God the father is mean. Somehow you messed up. You're not reading scripture right. Because they're 100% in sync at all times these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come why did they mention that he's in the treasury um probably one key reason the treasury is in the court of the women on the edge of the court of the women is where the sanhedrin met the sanhedrin is the council that hates his guts so in other words He is talking about all this stuff right outside the door area of the people that want him dead. But no one's arresting him yet. Now, for all of you little information nerds, I have a couple other bits of information for you. Because I like this stuff, so I'm going to share it with you. In the treasury, um, uh, they have found out through the temple examinations and everything that there was 13 different places to give offering against a wall so they would have they called them trumpets even though they don't really seem to look like a trumpet to me they were narrow at the top and then they would go down into a big almost like a gourd right so this big bottom area so you could drop your money in there and there were 13 of them because sometimes the crowds would come all at the same time and they didn't want people having to wait in line So I went ahead and looked up what they were all for. Some of them are earmarked funds. Some of them are not. 
But just for those of you that love this kind of history stuff, here's what I found out. The first two are for the temple upkeep. That was a mandatory tax that everyone had to pay, so they would all throw their money into one of the first two. Then three and four were for offerings for the purification if you had a baby. How many babies do you think were being had in Israel? Quite a few, all right? So there was two of those that you could drop your stuff in. Uh, Number five was just the offering for the wood of the burnt offering altar. And you're like, what? That's a weird thing to give to. Well, let me ask you this. How many sins were being committed in Israel? (laughs) Probably a lot. How many times were they coming and needing to burn something? A lot. So pretty much the priests are working 24 hours a day with burning wood. How much wood does that take? A lot, yeah? So there was an offering box just for the wood. Then there was an offering box next to it just for incense, meaning you'd pay money because the priests had to use incense in all their services, and that was expensive. Then there was one that was just for the upkeep of the instruments they used that were made out of gold. So if there was one that was getting tarnished or broken or beat up or bent, then they would purchase new ones or have new ones made. Now, the last of them were all general giving. People could just walk in and go, man, this is a sin offering. This is a thank the Lord offering. This is, I think it's awesome that it's Friday offering. It didn't matter. Whatever it was, you'd throw all that in the rest of it. But it's right here in this general court where they would have covered areas where they could have big crowds. Jesus starts to open up about all this stuff. And it says in verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, it sounds like he's trying to pick a fight, does it not? Anytime you tell someone else, I'm going away, you can't find me, you're going to die in your sin, that's not a nice way to make friends. So Jesus is purposely causing agitation. Now, is it accurate? Absolutely. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. Where is he going that he's going to go away? He's going to go to the presence of the Father. Why can't they come? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. If you reject the access, you can't get in. Does that make sense? If you reject the way, how are you ever going to get there? If you reject the truth, how are you going to know where to go? In other words, if you reject Jesus, there is no access to heaven because he's the only way to get there. And he said, and if you can't be covered by me because you reject me, if you won't let me die for your sins, if you won't let me cleanse you, then your sins are still on you and sins don't get into heaven. So therefore you're not getting into heaven and you will die in your sin. So he's very blatant and very open, but very honest. I'm going away and you are going to die in your sins. You cannot follow me where I'm going. Now notice they're obviously agitated, so they start reasoning out what he may mean. So the Jews said, what is he going to kill himself? I thought that that was bad news. What is he going to kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? And then he intensifies the irritant by saying this. He said to them, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hold on. Let me act like your preschool kids. Ready? Here we go. You are from below. You're from the devil's area, right? That's not nice. I am from above. 
You are from this world. I am not of this world. I told you, you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Don't say that to a group of Jews unless you want to get beat up because you're insulting everything they believe, everything that they know, and Jesus knew that. But without bringing light to it, without bringing truth to it, without bringing out the clear point, they literally thought they were fine. And he was trying to tell them, I love you too much to let you continue to believe that. That is not accurate. So they get agitated and they're getting really, you know, kind of frustrated. And so 25, so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Man, how long do I got to do this? I've been talking to you for like two years. You're not listening to me. You don't want to hear me. You don't want to know my heart. You're listening to see whether or not I'm going to give you something nice. You're going to listen to whether or not I'm going to say something that's going to trip me up. You're not listening because you want to learn. You're not going, you're not coming to church to try to say what is God's will for my life. You're coming to church because you want to hear what you want to hear, he would say. So Jesus said, excuse me, he said, I have much to say about you. I have much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Now, they didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. Why don't they want to hear it? Why is this so hard for them to hear? Well, new information has ramifications, yeah? Like, for example, if you learn a new truth, it may hijack your world. So let's say, for example, you believe that coming to Jesus means that you will get everything you want. And it's the health and wealth and prosperity and everything is great for you. And and if you truly honor God, he'll give you all the cash that you want. And then you come here. And I tell you, that is bogus, and that's not biblical. Well, that's going to hijack your world now, isn't it? Because now you're going to go, well, that was the whole reason I was in this thing. Ah, and now your whole religion has unraveled. So you either have to reject what I just said and hang on to your view, or you have to fall apart and start over again. Nobody likes to do that, right? And so they were hearing this thing where Jesus was telling them truths and they were going, no, that's not how I see it. And he goes, but what if you're wrong? So Jesus said to them, verse 28, when you have lifted up the son of man, and what does he mean to lift him up? Not exalt this time. What does it mean? To put him on a stick and hang him up on the cross, right? When you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority. In other words, I wasn't here for my own glory. But I'm only speaking as the Father has taught me. I'm here on God's behalf. So if you reject me, you're rejecting him. And he who sent me is with me. He hasn't left me alone because I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Why would things change just because they hang him on a cross? Why would they suddenly believe that he's legit just because he died on a cross? A lot of people died on the cross. Well, I think there was probably at least three reasons. 
Do you remember the story of the centurion? And we're going to get into this later into the series when we talk about what really happened when Jesus was on the cross. Do you remember the Roman centurion that said, whoa, truly this is the son of God. Like, I don't, we just messed up bad, guys. I don't know what we just did, but that was terrible. What made him think that? I think there's probably three things. I think number one, I think that after Jesus died for the sins of the world, God pulled the veil off people's eyes. If he would have pulled it off earlier, some of them would have stopped the crucifixion. So I think he waited. And then once it was a a done deal, he pulled the veil off and they went, oh, shoot, that's not right. I think the second reason is because of all the signs that fired off. Do you remember all the alarms that went off when Jesus died? I mean, maybe you don't remember this. Like I said, we'll get into it. But do you remember that there was darkness across the sky? Do you remember that there was an earthquake? That literally tombs were shaken open and people got out? Do you remember that the altar was split into two? The curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. That's not normal stuff. When you see all that stuff go haywire, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, we messed up. And then, of course, you can't have the resurrection without the cross. So him coming back is the ultimate proof that he is who he said he is. So, yeah, after you crucify Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you see him as the son of God. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him to push them further because he doesn't want any wimpy believers. He said, if you abide, if you continually live in my word, according to what I say and the truth in it, you are truly my disciples, my followers, and you will know the truth because I'll tell you and the truth will set you free. Okay. This is a churchy word. Abide. Anybody really know what abide means? Nobody ever uses that phrase today. Man, we're all going to go on a trip. Where are you going to abide? Right? You mean where am I going to stay? Okay. Abiding is a useful term because it means more than where you're just going to camp out or stay or hang out. Abide means to continually live in. All right. Now we're very transient as people. We don't all stay in the same house, but the concept is where are you going to remain and live? That's what abide means to abide in Christ means that you live in him. How do you do that? What does that even mean? It means you live every day as if he's real. And you're like, well, I I thought we were doing that. Are you? Maybe you are. It means you get up every day and you got nothing to bring to the table because you know you have no light in and of yourselves. So you're coming to him going, I got nothing, God. I don't have an agenda you're going to mess up. I don't have any plans you're going to wreck. I got nothing. I'm coming to the table. What do you want, God? Let's do it. I only exist for you. To abide means to be connected at all times. The Bible says, and we're going to get into it in John chapter 14, he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Why? Because that's like a preschool metaphor to say if you break a branch off a tree, what's going to happen to it? It's going to wither up and die because it has to be connected to the life source. Every Christian has to be continually connected to the life source, which means intimate, continual connection. And if you are abiding, if you're living in there, if you're always plugged in, if you're always connected, it means that suddenly the Bible is not opinions. The Bible is mandates. 
It means that prayer is not merely a laundry list of needs, but a two-way communication. It means that you're actually creating a world in your mind that God designs that's more real than the world that you see with your eyes. He said, if you abide with me, now we're talking about being a disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In what way is the truth going to set us free? And you're like, well, the truth's the gospel. So, Lance, it's pretty easy. I mean, if you know the gospel, then that's salvation, and that sets you free. Okay, let's say that's just it. That's beautiful and glorious in and of itself. But don't you think that there's more freedom that God intends than merely you to get a heaven ticket? You know what I'm saying? Okay, so what other freedoms do we need? What other truths need to come into our life to set us free? Well, let me, let me talk about the issue of bondage. You know, I told you that I recently had seen the Exodus movie, Gods and Kings, right? And, and I was just, I was looking at the massive amounts. In the movie, they happened to mention there was 400,000 uh, Hebrew slaves. But I was thinking about this issue of slavery, and how many times in history, the slaves always outnumbered the masters. Did you notice that? I mean, it was always, there was more of them than there were of the guys who were in charge. And isn't that the whole reason why Egypt wanted to put them into hard slavery? Because they went, wow, there's a lot of them out there. If they ever get together and turn on us, we're in trouble. Therefore, slavery cannot merely be a physical issue it has to be a psychological issue right you have to convince the slave that they can never you've got to crush their hearts and minds so that they do not see the obvious reality that they outnumber you and can take you at any moment there's a new reality show I read about, which I'm already embarrassed and it hasn't even come out yet. Anytime they do anything with pastors, I immediately go, oh, shoot, right? Because it's not going to go well. But it's, it's grabbing onto the popular uh, concept of sex trafficking. And this new show is where a pastor goes into brothels that he believes there's sex trafficking going on pays for the time and then interviews the woman and gives her an opportunity to leave a life of prostitution, right? And you go, well, that sounds nice. Problem is it's done for TV. So it's putting her on the spot and it's all awkward and it's not a long term solution. Here's my problem with this issue. There are some women in the world that literally can't get out, but most women in the world can walk out the door. But the problem isn't, can I walk out the door? It's where would I ever go? You have to understand, the cage that they live in has nothing to do with the front door. It has to do with their mind. When you have been trained up and beaten and told that you have no value, that everyone hates you, that everything outside is scarier than what you're dealing with in here, when you are told that you have no skills and you will never get any food and all you will do is starve if you leave here, when you are told such heinous, horrible things, that's why they don't leave. It's not they can't get out the door. It's what's out there for me. I can't do that. Bondage has to do with lies. 
But when you get truth inserted into lies, they begin to fall apart. That's why God's a big deal about bringing things out into the light, because then they start, you, you go, wait, 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 that chain's not even connected. What? This whole time, I've had this thing on my wrist, and it's not connected to anything. And he's like, yeah, I broke that off when you got saved. What do you mean? So this whole time I've been walking, that's the point. When all of a sudden truth enters into a situation and you begin to hear things like Satan is a bully. He plays off fear. He's trying to mess with your head. He's holding stuff over you that Jesus already died for. So that whole sin, the whole reason why you're not in ministry and the reason why you're not sharing your faith is because you think you're a loser because that one thing you did when you were 18, do you understand Jesus already died for that, paid for that, and you're already cleansed from that? And Satan's been trying to lie to you and keep that over your head this whole time? All of a sudden, truth comes in. Everything comes alive. And you go, wait, the door's not even locked. And you start to walk out. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they answered him, we are offspring, we are lineage of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Okay, first of all, let's stop there. Have the Jews ever been slaves to anyone? Gee, I don't know, was it the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Syrians, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Sidonians, the Maonites, the Amalekites, or the current Romans? Which one are you currently thinking of? You know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, you have. Then what do they mean? There's a difference between being a slave by pressure and there's a slave in heart. And what they're saying is, I don't care what you cage me in, you've never owned me. I will never worship your God. I will worship my God. I will never do what you tell me to do. I will do what I'm going to do. So you may crush me and you may hold me down in a government, but you never crush my spirit. We are still alive and there's a remnant still here. So the Jews, this is their fighting spirit, right? So they're saying, listen, in my heart, we've never been slaves, but you're talking about slaves of the heart. We've never had that. How can you say you'll become truly free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, seriously, check this out. Everyone who practices sin, habitually lives in it, is a slave to sin. You're no longer in control of your life. And just as a warning, kids, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He said, you want to play the Abraham game? What happened to Abraham's son, Ishmael? He was born of a slave. What happened to him? Oh, that's right. Abraham kicked him out of the house. What happened to Isaac, who was the true son of promise? He stayed in the house. So this whole business about you just think that you're related to Abraham, so you're all good. Not everybody related to Abraham had everything go good. And I'm warning you right now. When you say no to me and you say yes to yourself, you become a slave to something you didn't even know about. At first, it seems like you're just playing around with the idea. It seems like a cool idea at the time. Then all of a sudden, it becomes a habit. Then all of a sudden, the habit becomes a little intrusive, and you try to stop the habit. Oops, but now you can't stop the habit. Now it's a problem. That's how sin takes hold. He said, I'll play this game with you, verse 37. I know that you're offspring of Abraham physically, yet you seek to kill me Because my word finds no place in you. It doesn't resonate with you. But I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you've heard from your father. And they answered, Abraham's our father. 
Jesus said, if Abraham, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing what Abraham did. But right now you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. Remember, to say that something is your father means that you are like them in quality. He said, stop saying you're Abraham's kids when you don't look anything like him. Wow, how many of us need to hear that rebuke? Stop calling yourself a Christian when you don't look anything like Jesus. Whoa. Stop saying God is your father when you don't reflect him at all. Ouch. He said, you're not doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father. We have God. Jesus said, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord. He sent me. You really think you love God? Then you would love me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear emotionally or spiritually to hear my word. And now it gets really intense. Verse 44. You're of your father, the devil. Uh Uh-oh. Your will is to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Them are fighting words, yeah? My dad's God. Your dad's Satan. Whoa, okay. Well, that's going to agitate. What does he mean that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning? Well, who did Satan kill? Well, Adam and Eve, right? Hey, Adam and Eve, I have a tree out there. You can eat of everything else. Just don't eat that one because the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. Right? You remember that? That was pretty clear. So in other words, to eat the tree is to die. So what does Satan immediately want them to do? Eat the tree. He's like, man, what's up with the tree over there? They're like, yeah, God said, stay away from that thing. He's like, really? Why? I don't know. He said something about, well, when you eat of it, you'll surely die. And he's like, no, you won't. That's ridiculous. Try it. If you try the, I'll tell you right now, I will bet my tail on it. Right? Because he's a serpent. Anyway, (laughs) I will bet you there's nothing's going to happen to you. Watch right when you eat it. Oh, look, you're the same person. Look, you didn't die. See, he's a liar. And they eat of the tree and they began to die. He murdered the entire human race. And then you go, yeah, well, that was like internal spiritual death and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So then Adam and Eve have two kids. They have two boys, Cain and Abel. And he finds one of the boys won't play his game, but only goes for God. What are you going to do with that kid? Well, you got to convince the other kid to kill him with a rock. Oh, that's what happened. And then Cain kills Abel. He is a murderer and he wants... Everyone that God cares about dead. The only reason you're not dead now is because God has kept him at bay. But it's not like Satan likes you. It's not like he's your buddy. He wants you to be destroyed. And if he can't kill you, he'll nullify you. Somehow, some way, he will shut that light off. And that's all he cares about. Has he been a liar? Of course he is. And all he does is constantly bring up lies. And the worst kind of lies are the insidious ones where all you got to do is ask a question. Right? Do you really think you're forgiven? Seriously? What if you're not? I mean, I'm not saying you're not. I'm just asking a question. Do you understand how that messes with your heart right off the bat? Does God really love you? 
I mean, look at your life. I'm not telling you he doesn't love you. All I'm saying is, if you look at the sum total, whatever, you can do your own research. That's cool. Do you understand how that works? That's how Satan plays all the time. He just asks you questions. Is that really what it said? Is that what the Bible, is that really what's going on? Is that? The... Then verse 46 is pretty intense. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Jesus, standing in front of the most righteous people in all of Israel, uses the word hamartia, which means missing the mark. Here's what he just said. Which one of you righteous men can find one area that I miss the mark of perfection before God? Bring it. Now, you don't say that unless you're sinless, right? Because we just had a little story about someone, he is without sin, cast the first stone. Remember all that? Ah, this is all tying in again. If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever's from God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them, you're not from God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan? That's a heretic insult. And what, you have a demon? That's an anti-God insult. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. (laughs) Which this whole thing sounds funny when you read it again. I'm sure it was intense at the time. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He's the judge. Seriously, check this out. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, that's kind of a big bomb. The Jews said, now we know you got a demon. Man, Abraham died. The prophets died. All the coolest guys died. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. What are you, greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me of whom you say he's our God. But you don't know him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old. What you've seen Abraham from 2000 years ago. And Jesus said, seriously, check this out. Before Abraham was was i am boom throws the mic down and walks away the biggest i am of all of scripture how was their what was their reaction oh that's right they picked up stones to throw at him they're trying to kill him but jesus was hidden from them and went out of the temple why was that so insulting well i don't know there's probably a hundred reasons so far But what was the big one at the end? Well, you see, as I've told you, the Jews are really into that Moses story. Yeah? And there's a guy named Moses who was watching sheep one day, and he's walking around, and all of a sudden this bush lights on fire. And it's God. Moses walks up to check it out, and the voice says, take off your sandals where you're standing is holy ground. This is where all the Jewish kids are like, whoa. And he said, so Moses said, who are you? And God said, I am that I am. And that's where we get the word Yahweh and why that's the personal name of God. And Jesus goes, yeah, I know. That was me. And the Jews are like, we're done. I will kill you right now. What irritates me is when people outside church say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Other people put that on him later. Do you understand that's why they killed him? 
He, in their minds, a mere man, claimed to be God. That's blasphemy. That's why you die. Jesus would have never died if he didn't claim to be God. Of course he claimed to be God. That's why you're left with a decision, who is Jesus? Is he God? And if he's God, that means a whole different change in your world. What do we take away from this? He's just, I mean, it's like a 50 caliber gun. Jesus is just mowing down these Pharisees. And he's coming with all his heat. Why? Because they stopped listening. And they were smug. And they were self-righteous. And they thought they knew everything about religion. And they were wrecking it for everyone else. And so Jesus just unloaded on them and said, I'm tired of this. Whenever we come to God, and this is a theme you're going to hear throughout this entire series more and more and more is when we come to God, we only come with one proper posture. That is, hands outstretched, palms up, head looking towards heaven, and it's this, God, what do you got for me? I got nothing. What do you want to tell me today? I will go to your word, I will pray to you, I will seek your face. What do you want to say? Because once we become entrenched that we know what we're doing, the only thing you can do when you have a castle is to defend it. And when you spend all your time defending your view from God, you're learning nothing. And that won't happen. So our job is to be humble and responsive. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to get through the service uh, just physically. Thank you for uh, sustaining me. Thank you, Lord, for all my friends and family that are here. That, God, that we want to hear you. We want to know you more. We are, we are not interested in merely what people tell us about you. We want to know you for ourselves. We want to walk with you and read together with you and study you and learn of you. And uh, Father, we would love more interaction with you. So whatever that means for you, Lord, if that's something that you desire with us, would you bring it about in our lives that we might be able to know that you're speaking to us more, that, that you're with us more, that you're touching us more, that your presence is thick and heavy in our lives, not just here at church, but God, in our homes, in our hearts, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our friendships. God, please reveal yourself more and more. Take the scales off our eyes and allow us to see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a wonderful week and we'll see you next time.